This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I am thrilled to welcome back Margaret Heffernan to the show. Margaret, thanks for being with me again. Oh, it's just a joy to be talking to you again. Thank you for having me back. Thank you, my dear. And today you're going to be talking about the people and organizations who are not daunted by uncertainty. Margaret, you have this incredible new book out called Uncharted, How to Map the Future Together. But let's set this up because you and I are still... Uh, We are recording during the global pandemic. We're all still navigating around the world, uh, COVID-19. And we are in what I would call a a constant state of ambiguity. And I think that really reflects a lot of what your book is about. This, um, This difficult time that we can't predict what's happening. So help us understand the genesis of of your book and, and why you wrote about this. Yeah. Well, um, I think, you know, I wrote about the book primarily because I kept having lots of conversations with people about the future that persuaded me that generally people think about it in a really um, unhelpful, impractical way. You know, these were conversations where people would ask me, what's going to happen about this? What's going to happen about that? And I thought, but it's the future nobody knows. It hasn't happened yet. Nobody's been there. You can't have any certainty about this. And yet the questions imply that somehow, somewhere, people do have certainty. And so that really led me to think about where does this craving for certainty come from and why is it just pointless? You know, and and how can I persuade people that it's the wrong question, that instead of asking what is the future going to be, which nobody can answer, why don't we ask better questions like what could it be? And what might it be? And what might I be able to do? And what might the be the signs? What might the signs be that I could do this? And instead of seeing uncertainty as something to eliminate, which I think is impossible, see in uncertainty a richness of possibility that might encourage people to make the future they wait they want, rather than wait for one that they think is somehow ready made but hidden from view. And um, and I think about this particularly in the context of entrepreneurs because I think entrepreneurs to a very significant degree do make the future they want. They don't wait for people to tell them where to go. They experiment and they explore and they create both the lives and the businesses and the inventions and the services that they want to see. And I think there's a huge lesson in this for us, which is if you wait for the future, it's going to be made by the people who didn't wait. That's beautifully put. It it, it makes me think about how we can design our future, but have to be open to the possibilities and be willing to discover and iterate and pivot because nothing is predictable. 
That's exactly right. You know, and many years ago, I used to teach a course in entrepreneurship when I was living in Boston. And the first thing I would do is I would send my students out to walk Newbury Street, which is the big shopping street in Boston, and just tell me, what do you sense? What do you feel? What do you see? What do you think is going on out there? What are people wanting? What are they not getting? You know, that this is what entrepreneurs do, which is they live in a very sensitized world. And they think about what the, you know, what the early warning scenes, signs or the kind of weak signals are that signify either a change or an unmet demand. And they pick it up early and they don't, you know, wait for market research by which time it's history. You know, they live in the world in a highly attuned way and they think about where does what is happening in the world intersect with who I am and want to be or want to be doing. And these are the people who make the future. They don't just think of themselves, if you like, as passive recipients or victims of the future. So are you positing that that we could all benefit from being a bit more entrepreneurially minded? Well, you know, there's a chapter in my book called Think Like an Artist. And I think in many ways, artists do much the same thing. You know, artists are frequently making work way ahead of time. And they make work that lasts sometimes for centuries. And I think this is because, rather like entrepreneurs, they are highly attuned both to what's happening in the moment but I think what artists in particular do so well um, is they connect that with the kind of deeper, persistent, perennial human needs and passions. And so they're looking for both the immediate areas of change and the kind of deep human needs that people always have. And they have this incredible capacity to connect the very short term with the very long term. And um, of course, you know, in that chapter, I write about very many really great artists. But I think, you know, most human beings have this creative capacity to connect what they see here and now to their longer term yearnings and desires and to make sense out of that and to create meaning out of it. And that may be in a business, it may be in a career, it may be in an artistic expression. It can take all sorts of shapes and forms. But I think human beings have this capacity and it gives us infinitely more power and agency than sort of swallowing wholesale the propaganda that passes as forecasting. So that's a great segue, Margaret. Let's talk about the propaganda because it's an interesting time with our use of technology and there's so much data out there and it seems like the predictions are just rapid firing, yet they're not always accurate, right? So I think there's this myth that the data always leads to the desired or predicted outcome and, and that's just not happening. It's completely not happening and it's bogus. You know, this idea that people are just data and when we have all the data on you, we'll know everything about you. I mean, even at the simplest test, it fails. You know, Amazon keeps sending me emails suggesting that I buy the books I've written. 
I mean, it can't <laughs> even connect that. And it's not like mine is the most common name in the universe. I mean, that, you know, data, you know, what you get with data is what you're looking for. So the search for data is often extremely biased and narrow minded. And also there are many aspects of my life, I would even argue, perhaps the most important aspects of my life, for which there is no data. I don't, I, I can't imagine the data that says how much I love my children, how much I love my husband, how much I love my garden or my neighbors or uh, the book I've just read. You know, the, the stuff that is being paraded as data, as though it is this objective, absolute knowledge is just, you know, it's so thin and it's interpreted in such sometimes thin, often bogus ways that I, I mean, I just think the public is being spectacularly hoodwinked. The data that Amazon has on me, clearly from their response to it, is minuscule. And of course, Amazon doesn't know all the books that I buy elsewhere. They don't know all the books that people send me. They don't know all the books I've read in the whole of my life or that are in my library or that people give me because they think I might like it. I mean, this is just, you know, this is, this is, this is shamanism. And really what it is, is, is I think deeply misleading marketing. And I'm dismayed by the degree, frankly, to which people have fallen for it. And I'm even more dismayed by the degree to which they're likely to believe it and, you know, to buy all sorts of books that actually they're not going to like. Now, I can see that for the Amazons of this world, this is cool. And bear in mind that Amazon has even patented, you know, a, a predictive shopping algorithm, which means they can start sending us stuff they think we'll like, right? This is really deeply coercive, mm -hmm. um, you know, on the understanding, well, the first couple we can keep for free. And after that, you know, it's up to us to send it back. I mean, I think this is, I would just call it propaganda and bullying. And I think it philosophically and technically, it's bogus. And it's, um, it isn't something we should fall for. Well, and you talk about it in, in part one of the book, you, you call it prediction addiction. And, and that, that term just took my breath away. Yeah. And I think, you know, because we feel uncertain, not knowing what the future is, we're terribly gullible. You know, it's, uh, and I write, as you know, in the book about, you know, all these predictions about driverless cars, mm -hmm. which again, people have just swallowed hook, line and sinker, although there are just a million issues around it, you know, which is these things don't work in snow and fog, cars stop uh, for pedestrians, which means there are uh, carjackers daydream um, to the degree that all these cars are connected. They are a hacker's daydream. And the truth of the matter is, and I can say this having worked, you know, in the software industry for some time, this is not prediction. This is marketing and salesmanship, and it's designed to boost the valuation of certain companies, and it's designed to soften up legislators to persuade them against regulating what could be deeply dangerous technology. And I think, you know, in the same way that we're learning very much the hard way to be skeptical of fake news, we need to be deeply skeptical of fake 
forecasting. I mean, for at least 10 years, I think every year that I have read several articles which say, this is the year, this is the year that is the year when virtual reality really comes into its own, right? I confidently expect to be reading those articles for the next 10 years. This is a technology in search of an application and an investment in search of a return. It has nothing to do with the truth. So that that's fascinating to me because, again, you talk about the dangers of outsourcing major areas of our lives to apps and technology. That's risky. Yeah. And I mean, some of it's risky and some of it isn't. So for example, you know, it used to be, uh, I knew all the phone numbers of members of my family, you know, my parents, my kids and so on. I've now effectively outsourced that to my phone. I'm okay with that. I don't think that, you know, holding those numbers in my head was a deeply meaningful experience for me. And um, and I'm confident that if I lose my phone, you know, I have backups and all that kind of thing. So I don't mind outsourcing that. But I mind outsourcing, for example, thinking about how to bring up my children. And, you know, one of the most ludicrous examples I came across you know, were apps teaching parents how to bring up their children, which claim to be able to predict what their children will achieve. Now, you don't have to scratch an inch thick to discover that this too is bogus, but it's worse than that because what people using these apps have found is they spend so much time looking at the app, they spend less time interacting with their children. Right, there's a trade-off here that if you outsource to technology, you start to take care of the technology rather than the work that you thought you were getting rid of. I don't trust an app designed by somebody I don't know, whose values I don't know, to tell me how to interact with other people. And actually, we saw exactly the same in healthcare, which is, you know, there was a great move towards digitizing um, electronic medical records and what they discover, and Atul Gawande has written brilliantly about this, was actually the more time that doctors spent uh, entering all this data when they were talking to patients, um, entering the data, the less eye contact they had with patients. So all the time when they could have been talking to patients and thinking about them and getting to know them, and really observing them, they were spending staring at their screens instead. So this is not a cost-free trade-off. And I think, you know, I'm I'm by no manner of means anti-technology. I'm not a lot. I, I spent many years, happy years running tech companies. But I think we have to be very much more choiceful in thinking, what are the really tedious things that I'm happy to let technology do? like remember all the phone numbers? And what are the things like making decisions and talking to people and writing to people that I do not want to let technology do? I do not want Microsoft to predict what I'm writing in my emails. I do not want LinkedIn to respond to my messages. And, you know, I do not want um, algorithms to make decisions for me. Because decisions are a part of who I am, and I am not prepared 
to outsource my identity to corporations whose interests are absolutely not aligned with mine. So, Margaret, how can we better predict the future? Because I I believe there are scenarios that we need to be prepared for. You know, I think of uh, climate change, right, and our, our environment. I mean, that's vital to our survival in the future. So being able to model and predict what's coming will impact how we live. There's no doubt about that. And I'm very glad you brought it up because I think the thing about climate change, very much like pandemics, is that these are things which we know are real and are happening and will keep happening. But what we can't do with that knowledge as much as we have is predict it in a very granular way. So we know climate change is real, but we can't say this forest will catch fire. Those agricultural crops will be flooded. It simply doesn't operate that way. And so the difficulty comes that we can see the big picture but we can't see the little picture. And the consequence of that, I think, for us is that we need either personally or you know, within organizations, we have to be able to think, okay, so what are the kind of good, bad, indifferent, excellent scenarios? And in each case, how do we prepare for those? And make sure that we are prepared adequately for each of them. Because it isn't a choice which scenario we get. We don't know which one we're going to get. But if we're working from good, reliable data, we can see what the best might be. We can see what the worst might be. And we can make good, really practical decisions about not how to prevent this stuff, but how to respond to it or prepare for it in a way that when these things happen, we're okay. And, you know, one of the things I do in my book is I talk about the difference between resilience and robustness. You know, resilience means we have enough to recover from from a shock. But robustness is making sure we have enough that when the shock comes, we're still okay. And I think this is what we need to focus on, which is not, okay, it may be catastrophic, but we can recover from the catastrophe. But Let's try to build systems and let's try to think about our lives in a way where when the worst thing happens, we're still all right. You know, so on, to take that out of, out of the abstract, you know, I think a lot about the fact that I think something like, um, you know, the majority of Americans have fewer savings um, that will let them survive for four months. That's not robust. You know, that means if we have an economic downturn, these people are in deep, deep trouble. We need to start thinking about ourselves and our families in terms of having enough resilience so that when economic downturns occur, you know, we can we can last longer than that. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that that's easy, but what I am saying is that if we want to be robust in ourselves, we need to perhaps save more than we used to because the world is so unpredictable. This, you know, We've seen exactly the same thing after the banking crisis. All banks are now required to hold far more capital than they ever did before. And that's sort of inefficient because the capital isn't being used, but it's designed to ensure if there's another banking crisis, 
the banking system doesn't teeter on the edge of collapse and we don't have to bail them out. So part of what we have to think about is in what areas are things that really uphold our way of life um, uncertain and how do we put enough surplus into our lives or our companies or our societies so that even if the worst happens, we're okay. And the, the, you know, the counter argument to that is, but you know, we might do lots of stuff that we don't need to do. And the counter argument to that is, yeah, but just imagine what happens if you get it wrong. And in this pandemic, we got it wrong, you know, both in the US and the UK, we had all sorts of pandemic planning, we had all sorts of robust systems. In the last five years in both countries, all of that was dismantled. And the consequence of that is that millions of people have died who need not have done so. That's a real cost. So true. Margaret, I'd like to shift to the world of work and ask you, uh, you write in the book about how work needs to be recast from the hierarchical command control structure into an egalitarian cathedral project. And I'd love for you to explain that, where each person has a defined role and contributes to their full ability. Tell me more about that. Well, there are a couple of things. I mean, a cathedral project is a a phrase uh, coined by Stephen Hawking. where he talked about, you know, projects that take longer than a human lifetime to come to fruition. And he's really talking about, um, he's talking about like the great Gothic cathedrals of Europe, you know, which often took hundreds of years to make. And one of the things that's so impressive about them is these are buildings that didn't have architects and which evolved over time and which therefore allowed kind of emerging technologies to be incorporated into them. Um, and so they're, so although they're very long term, they're also very adaptable. And they were able to adapt because, you know, the cathedrals were built by the uh, skilled craftsmen who were required, whether they were stonemasons, whether they were... Um, sculptors, whether they would word work, sorry, were word woodworkers. Um, and I think, and I've seen this a lot recently, you know, I think that in an age of uncertainty, which I think we now inhabit, I think that organizations that are better at hearing the voices of everyone and not voices being blocked by hierarchy I think they are very much more adaptable and flexible. And again, to take that out of the abstract, I would say that, you know, surveying many of the companies that I work, have worked with through the pandemic and that many of my academic friends and colleagues have surveyed, what we've seen during the pandemic period is a huge amount of power necessarily having to be delegated down to a local level because with everybody working remotely, it was just impossible to have all the on the ground information that was needed. So a lot of authority and decision making was pushed down. And on the whole, that has worked exceptionally well. But what I would say is that clearly companies that had this distributed delegated model before the pandemic 
have done better. They've adapted faster. Information flowed much faster. That making decisions on the ground by people who were trusted and knowledgeable was a much faster way to adapt to unexpected circumstances than centralized command and control. And I think, you know, given that we are heading into crises, uh, you know, economic crises, inequality crises, a climate crisis, I think that probably going forward, this distributed model of decision-making and empowerment is going to give organizations far more flexibility in their response. Things will move faster and information will be acted on Um, not just more quickly, but with greater authority. Margaret, I learned so much from you today, as I always do. Thank you for joining me on the show. I want to tell our global audience the title of your book so they can get out there and buy it. It's called Uncharted, How to Map the Future Together. And of course, it's available on Amazon and at major book retailers. Margaret, I wish you continued success. What a joy to have you on the show Thank you for spending time with me today. Well, thank you, Caroline, for all of your excellent questions and, you know, my best wishes to all your listeners. Thank you, my dear. And if you like our show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because this helps new people find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to feature on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.